Robert F. Smith sat back in his chair, a satisfied smile on his face. He had just closed the deal on his latest acquisition, a small software company based in Silicon Valley. It was the 500th company he had acquired since starting Vista Equity Partners over 20 years ago. As he looked around his spacious office, decorated with art and memorabilia collected from his many travels around the world, Robert felt a sense of pride in what he had accomplished. Vista now held over 70 companies with 70,000 employees in 175 countries, managing over $100 billion in assets. They were a top five enterprise software company, and their success was based on a well-defined system for growth. This is the great story of the software king Robert Smith, the tech giant rising to top software's ownership. Robert had stumbled upon this system quite by accident. He had started his career as a banker, but he had always been fascinated by software companies. One day, he met with the founder of an auto dealership software maker and discovered that their margins were way better than other software companies. They had systems for everything, and Robert saw an opportunity. He told them to buy other companies with their cash, but they told him to do it himself. And so, in 2000, the Brockman family committed $1 billion, and Robert started Vista. They were the sole investor, and most of Robert's Goldman Sachs colleagues thought he had lost his mind. Back then, banks wouldn't lend to software companies because they didn't have hard assets to borrow against. But Vista persuaded banks that subscription-based businesses could tolerate debt. Robert's first buyout fund returned 29.2% annually net of fees. Software contracts are better than first lien debt, he explained. A company will not pay the interest on its first lien until after they pay its software maintenance or subscription fee. We get paid our money first. Who has the better credit? He can't run his business without our software. Vista's secret to success was their 110-point playbook. It was a closely guarded secret, known only to a select few in the company. By sticking to the rules in the playbook, their software companies would transform, and with some leverage, Vista would get amazing returns. We don't underwrite to hope. We underwrite based on critical factors for success under our control, Robert said. Most of the best practices in the playbook were three to ten pages long, with tons of attachments and examples. They were now numbered in the hundreds of PDFs and printed out, filled binders. The playbooks were stored in a password-protected online library, available only to authorized portfolio company managers. Even the top execs of portfolio companies only got access to the sections they needed to know about. Sales could see sales. Marketing could see marketing. Vista was a factory, and a deal came in. It was compartmentalized. Vista applied experts to each piece of the company, and after it went off the assembly line, the margins were higher. Cost-cutting was critical to Vista's model, and they moved from expensive cities to cheaper ones like Dallas. Many employees wouldn't make the move, allowing Vista to hire cheaper replacements. Robert had always been interested in efficiency and optimization, and he had built his playbook around that. He had a system for everything, from product development to sales to customer support. And it was working. Vista's software companies were thriving, and Robert was becoming increasingly wealthy. But as Robert sat in his office, surrounded by the trappings of success, he couldn't help but wonder if he had missed something. Was there more to life than just buying and selling software companies? He had everything he could ever want, but he felt like something was missing. One day, he decided to take a break from the office and go for a walk. As he walked, he noticed a group of homeless people huddled under a bridge, seeking shelter from the rain. It was a stark contrast to the wealth and opulence that surrounded him every day. 
Robert felt a pang of guilt as he realized how much he had and how little he had done to help those less fortunate. He had always believed in giving back, but he had been so focused on building his business that he had neglected that part of his life. As he continued to walk, he thought about his upbringing. He had grown up in a middle-class family in Denver, Colorado, and his parents had always instilled in him the value of education and hard work. They had also taught him to be grateful for what he had and to give back to his community. Robert realized that he had strayed from those values and that he needed to make a change. He decided to use his wealth and influence to make a difference in the world. He wanted to do something that would have a lasting impact, something that would help people and communities for generations to come. He began by setting up a foundation that focused on education and providing opportunities for underprivileged children. He also started investing in affordable housing projects and working with local governments to improve infrastructure in low-income areas. As he became more involved in philanthropy, he found that it gave him a sense of purpose and fulfillment that he had never experienced before. He realized that there was more to life than just making money, and that he could use his wealth to make a positive impact on the world. But he also knew that he couldn't do it alone. He needed to bring others along with him, to inspire them to use their resources and talents to make a difference in the world. He began to reach out to other successful entrepreneurs and business leaders, encouraging them to get involved in philanthropy and social impact. He organized conferences and events, bringing together like-minded individuals to share ideas and collaborate on projects. Through his efforts, Robert became a leading voice in the world of social impact and philanthropy. He was invited to speak at conferences around the world, and he was recognized for his work with numerous awards and accolades. But for Robert, the most significant reward was knowing that he was making a difference in people's lives. He continued to push himself to do more, to find new ways to create positive change in the world. As he looked back on his life, he knew that he had been blessed with many opportunities in life, and he was committed to using those opportunities to make the world a better place. And with that thought, he got up from his chair and headed back to work, ready to continue his mission to create positive change in the world. This is Tech and Butter. Subscribe for more tech videos and startup stories. All right, so we, we understand that this is Metropolitan New Testament Missionary Baptist Church, Metro. And the leader of this house is the distinguished Reverend Dr. Brother Damone Paul Johnson, senior pastor. And we'll allow him to start the show. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for your patience. It is an honor and a phenomenal opportunity that we have on today. Uh, very thankful for uh, the privilege, very thankful for you being here and for this community symposium. Uh, the Bible uh, has uh, 3,250 verses uh, that deal with money and possessions. There are only 500 verses that deal with love, only 400 on prayer, but 3,250 3, on money and possessions. Jesus gave 38 parables, but 16 out of 38 dealt with material possessions and money. And so money is an important uh, topic in the Bible is an important topic for our community, and we are blessed to have Robert F. Smith with us on today. He is the CEO of Equity uh, Partners, 
and we are uh, Vista uh, partners and we are thankful to have him. He's my brother in Alpha and he is an extremely successful uh, man and we want to give uh, opportunity for him to share with us his journey and what we may benefit from him not only as a church but also a community and we're so thankful that you're here. Give yourselves a hand for availing yourself to this type of opportunity. Brother Smith, first of all, thank you for oh. being with us. Thank you for availing yourself, your My generous pleasure. time. And sh please share with us uh, part of your journey and um, what, it, what it takes to, to be successful and in, in, uh, what obstacles you may have had to overcome uh, to reach your level. We, we don't have enough time to go through all the <laughs> obstacles. Okay. All um, right. uh, first of all, I'm, I'm happy that I'm here and thank you for, for inviting me. Uh, it's, it's always a wonderful opportunity to, to spend time with your community, uh, to just share thoughts, ideas, uh, in some cases experiences that might be helpful to, to others of you, you know, as you go on your journey. I mean, I am still on my journey, uh, uh, as, as you could all well imagine. Um, and to some degree, I just recall many conversations I had when I was, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten, fifteen, twenty years old uh, with people with gray hair like I have now. Uh, and I kind of half listened, but sometimes the half listening actually imparted something that made a big difference later on in my life. And what I will try to do is, uh, is spend some time today to give you a little bit of a recitation of the narrative of, of, of my life um, and to, to how, it, how it has helped me become the person I am and the man I am and how I think about it in creating an opportunity for uh, my family and my community to, you know, to enjoy the fruits of what America does provide. Um, in spite of what I call the fractious nature of what we see today in America, it is still the greatest country in the world, quite frankly, for opportunity. Um, and if you travel the world like I do, uh, and I probably go to you know, 40, 50 countries a year, um, you start to really understand that this is one of the few places where we have on-ramps uh, to opportunity that other places don't. And in some cases, you know, we don't see those on-ramps as prevalent in our communities. And so part of what our role here is, is to force those on-ramps to, uh, to emerge uh, and, and create them when we can and, uh, and, and demand them when they are withheld. And so part of what the elders of this community have to do is make sure that they are never silent in demanding those on-ramps. And part of you as youth have to understand is when those on-ramps become present uh, to take advantage of every step along the way because there has been a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and literal blood um, to put those on-ramps uh, uh, and make them available for you to launch into what is the greatest economic opportunity on the planet, which is in America. So part of what I'd like to do here today is go through a little bit of a narrative talk a little bit about you know, how I think about things um, and frankly really just want to answer questions. I think that that is what's going to be most helpful. You know, the youth today, uh, you, know, you have to remember, I still kind of think of myself as 17 years old. Uh, and those who are young are like, what are you talking about? But those of you who are my age say, yeah, I feel exactly the same way. Um, and seeing that there's so much ahead of us and so much opportunity, but part of that is to also think about where you are in the present and what steps you need to take to, to, to get to where you want to go. And I am constantly moving forward on that. But hopefully in answering questions through your perspective uh, and through your eyes and through your words, it will be helpful to you to, to frame uh, in a way that, that leads you to places you want to go. Um, 
let me give you a little bit of background and history. I grew up in Colorado. I'm the fourth generation in my family from Colorado. We've been there since the 1860s. Half of us were marched out there um, unwillingly in the 1860s. The other half kind of migrated up from Texas and parts of Kansas uh, in that period of time. And we settled in this little town called Pueblo, Colorado, which, as you can imagine, um, there weren't very many of us there as African Americans. But one of the things you learn uh, when you grow up in a place like uh, Denver, Colorado, and uh, is that the strength of your community is, is critically important in terms of helping you understand, A, who you are, B, how to get to where you want to go. You know, I come from a long line of educators, school teachers, and in some cases they uh, found themselves with the highest level of education. You know, uh, both of my parents had what were called, you know, doctorates, EDDs in education. Um, hard fought, hard won, you know, from the, in the 60s and the 70s, as you can imagine. And I looked, I remember being in elementary school when I was uh, probably six or seven or eight years old, uh, where they were actually first starting to desegregate um, the school system. Um, prior to that, it was segregated, you know, all the black kids went to black schools and uh, white kids went to white schools, and that's what it was. My father was actually a principal at the neighborhood school, which was literally six blocks from my house, but they decided to desegregate, so I had to now get on a bus and travel about 45 minutes to go to school every morning, which means we got up at 5.45 in the morning. I had to go clean up my dad's car, my mom's car, all that happy stuff, and then get to school. Now, the interesting thing about that was once I was at school, after about two or three years, and these kids who didn't look like me uh, figured out that I wasn't that bad of a person, uh, I every now and then got invited to their homes for like a birthday party. And when I went to those houses, I found out their houses were a lot bigger than mine. Uh, they had nicer stuff than we had. They had better cars than we had. And when I actually found out what their parents did, um, their parents actually were no more educated than my parents. In fact, they were a lot less educated than my parents. And so the conundrum in my mind was my parents always told me, get a great education. And that was an important part of life. And I said, okay, great. But then I looked and said, well, you guys have this great education, but yet we live worse off than they do. And that's when it hit me for the first time um, how in America education is not enough, especially for us as African Americans. You also need to have access to the economy. And so as I'm now going from, you know, from elementary school to middle school to high school, I started to actually think about, well, what is access to the economy? Why did they live in that great house? And A, their father is a contractor, but owns his own, his own contracting business. And yet down the street, I had a friend, his father worked for a contractor, but didn't own his own contracting business. They lived near, near us. And when I looked at that, I said, you know, part of what has to happen, and in my mind, was I needed to, and I wanted to become a business owner. And that was early on. So literally, you know, I started my first business when I was probably nine or 10 years old. I was selling golf balls and I, you know, cut grass. I did all those sorts of things because the fact of the matter is I actually didn't like wearing my brother's clothes until I was 14 years old. You know, I wore hand-me-downs basically until that period of time. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but you know, kids can be cruel in some respects, but part of that also hardens you to help you understand and help you to reach some of your goals. And part of my goal was to be part of uh, an, an, an economic class in America where I could buy my own clothes, the ones I wanted, and buy the shoes that I wanted, and go the places I wanted. And one of the advantages of, again, having parents who uh, wanted me to read and forced me to read, I got a chance to read a number of things, and. One of the things that inspired me early in my life was actually, believe it or not, the James Bond novels. 
because as I read them, they took me and transported me to places that I had no idea actually really existed. And if you've ever seen any of those movies, I mean, they characterize them in these movies. And I was like, wow, this is pretty terrific. I want to figure out a way to actually get to that place. And that is part of the impetus behind me working hard and also driving myself to, to go figure out how to create an opportunity uh, that I could actually make big and lasting and, an Im and have an impact. And so as I then started going into high school, you know, computers were just now getting introduced in our economy. And I heard about this place called Bell Labs where they invented the transistor. And they had a Bell Labs in my, uh, my, in my it was outside of Denver, but in, my, in, in the state. And I called the human resources director when I was a junior in high school. And I said, hey, you know, I'd like to get a job at, at Bell Labs. And they said, I said, do you have summer internships? And they said, well, if you're between your junior and senior year in college, we, we have internships. And I said, that's fantastic. I'm a junior in high school. I'm taking AP classes. I'm getting all A's in them. It's just like being in college. And the woman said, no, it isn't. <laughs> and I called that human resources director every day for two weeks. And this is in the month of January. And she stopped taking the calls after the second day. But I left a message every single day for two weeks. I then called her every Monday for five months. And finally, I got a call back in June. And she called and she said, hey, listen, and she called. My dad happened to be home at the time. And uh, he said, hey, this woman from Bell Labs called you and said she'd like you to call her back. I'm like, wow, okay. So I called her back. And she, said, she said, listen, a student from MIT didn't show up. And I'm not guaranteeing you anything, but we have an extra slot for the summer. So why don't you come and let's interview you and, you know, we'll see what happens. So, of course, I get the one suit that I owned and, and put it on and the one white shirt that I had. And I, you know, at the time I bought my first car when I was 15 and my mom got mad when let me drive, drive it till I was 16. But, you know, got that thing working, put $2 of gas in, which gas was probably 40 cents a gallon in, and drove to Bell Labs and got a job at Bell Labs when I was 17 years old. And then the world just opened up for me. You all have these things in your pockets, you know, cell phones. I saw the first mobile phone 30, over 30 years ago. The first video phone over 30 years ago in one of these laboratories. And I said, wow, this is where the world is going. And I have an opportunity to understand how these things are made, not just to consume them, but as I like to think about it, have, be, have an opportunity to upload into the economy and not download, right? Because if you're uploading, you're making money. If you're downloading, you are spending it and someone else is making it. And I was got that experience when I was 17 years old and I said, at that point, I knew that in the world that we, at least I lived in, intelligence can create huge profits. And in fact, you can actually make more money being smart than you can being strong or fast. Okay? And so the importance of developing intellectual property cannot be underestimated. Because I want you to think about something. Intellectual property, no one else can take that from you. Point number one, if you manage it right. Point number two, it is constantly evolving and it actually takes no capital. 
If I'm going to go into real estate business, it takes me a whole lot of money to go buy a building and get in the real estate business. Intellectual property, I just have to think through how it actually works and then de develop it. And that's what really launched me on the path to saying, you know what? You know, as good as I thought I was playing football and all those wonderful things, and my mom was, was a wonderful uh, uh, governor to my ambitions. She said, you're a far better uh, scholar than you are athlete, um, which kind of hurt my feelings um, at the time. Uh, but she was absolutely right. And I started to turn my attention to what I call developing my mind. So from that, I now have what I call three sayings that, that we use uh, and I drive in my kids um, and, and to help them think about life. And we have three rules, and I call them dad's rules. And the first rule is you are enough. And I hope they realize, and I'll hopefully I'll share this with you, that you are enough to be who you want to be and to create what you want to create. You have to make sure that beyond the intention that you put out there, you put action to support the intention. Don't say, I want to be a millionaire, but don't take the activities to do it. Or I want to be the best at something, but don't practice it. It's important to understand that you are enough pieces, you know, you know, put in the vision, have the vision of what you want to become but you have to put consistent action behind that vision in order for that to manifest. And it has to be consistent. You know, I had the good fortune, I was invited here by one of my fraternity brothers, uh, Louis Tobias, and I remember many a day, Louis and I, Friday night, we're gonna go to the party, and we went to the party, and we finished at the party at 2.30, and three o'clock, we were back studying. So that we could do well on an exam on Monday. It is the importance of knowing that it's your own intention and your power and your actions that can actually lead to you know, the outcome that, is, that, that you want to have manifest. You know, the second rule that, I, that, I, that we call dad's rules is discover the joy of figuring things out. You know, in this world, and I, I, you know, the importance of actually you know, going through the process of understanding what the problem is and then figuring it out yourself. And every now and then you need some help, that's fine. But if you get too much help, you never figure out how to do things. And you don't develop the grit. And some of the older folks in this audience are shaking their heads. Yeah, you gotta have grit. And grit means getting turned away from things 14, 15 times, calling someone every two weeks, you know, every day for five months and then finally it materializing in something that you want. And discovering the joy of figuring things out means, you know, if, if you, know, for, you know, fight through those problems. Understand and learn how you address those problems and come up with the answers to those, uh, come up to, with the answers to those problems in a solution that is uniquely yours. That's an important part of growing up and solving problems because if you can't solve easy problems now, you will not be able to solve difficult problems later. And the last thing is love is all that matters. You need to make sure that you love yourself, your family, and those in your community, but you cannot let that love hold you back, but you have to let that love empower you. And so those are kind of the three, you know, the three lessons that I want to impart, and I'm happy you know, at this point really to, to take questions, and, and any questions, I'm, it's all fair game. Uh, and hopefully, you know, there will be a few nuggets of wisdom that might be helpful to, helpful to you, you know, realize your dream and become the person you want to become. So, with that, I'm happy to take questions. Madison, let's, thank, thank you. Thank you, first of all, thank you. Madison, let's start with you. Um, do you, how much of your success do you give to God and do you tithe? Yeah, it's a great question. So, the, the, the beautiful question. 
the question around how much of it do I give to God, all of it. Because here's I, what, you, what you have to understand and what I understood early on in life was when I really think about and talk about the manifestation of my life, it's a manifestation of prayer. Okay? I put deep prayer in every single moment of every day about what I want to manifest in my life. And that has been my journey for over 30 years. I learned something many, many years ago that if you actually create an idea in your mind, speak that idea, okay, into the universe, into God's ear, and make sure that your actions are consistent with that idea, it manifests. Now, sometimes it doesn't necessarily manifest in the form that you think you want it, but it often manifests in a form that's better than what you ever imagined. You have to be open to recognizing it, okay? That is an important part of understanding, you know, what God's power and God, what God's love is. In terms of tithing, I probably this year, just to give you an example, have between me and, and the foundation that I'm president of, have donated well over $150 million to our community. From the United Negro College Fund, STEM programs, Cornell University, Susan G. Komen, these are, you know, for, for African American, for breast, breast cancer, these are an important part of, frankly, what has made me successful is every year, and if you ever go on my website, I'm probably one of the only private equity firms in the world that actually has a communities page on our website where I demonstrate to not only you know, my partners in, in my organization, but everyone, the importance of giving back to your community. You have to create on-ramps. Tithing isn't just money, but it is money. Tithing is time, it's energy, it's attention. You know, one of the, the recent ties that my wife and I now have is with aging out foster care kids. So when you turn 18, or when you graduate from high school, believe it or not, you're kicked out of the foster care system. And during Christmas, they don't have a place to go. So now we've opened up our ranch, and this past winter we had 10, and we're gonna ramp up to 50, that this is where they now spend Christmas. Because you know, the dorm shut down, they have nowhere to stay. So, as you all think about Tithing, you have to think about the resources that you have. Sometimes you may not have money to tithe, but you may have an extra bedroom over Christmas that a foster care child can, can sleep in and not have to go to a homeless shelter or be subjected to the abuses that happen when you are working to, be in, you know, working to go through college and have nowhere to stay. Only 3% of the foster care kids actually graduate from college. And most of them is because they end up with no infrastructure beyond what I'll call the schools. You know, the, most states pay for their college, but they don't pay for their housing. They don't pay for, for you know, places in the state when the dorms are closed down. So think about tithing in a very broad sense, but also think about it very specifically in dollars and cents. When you were a kid, you said that growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood gave you some grit. How did that grit benefit you as you grew up? I actually grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. But I ended up going to school in a predominantly white school. Okay? So as you all can, can imagine, uh, and I don't know, you know how it is in this school district, I was only of, of one, there were three African-American kids in my class. 
from kindergarten, really first grade through sixth grade. You know, two boys and one girl. So depending upon the semester, either I'm with the other boy or I'm with the girl. And there's only two of us in any one of these classes for the first, you know, five, six years of my educational experience. What it teaches you is a couple things. One, it teaches you you're more alike than everybody else and you are different. Kids recognize that. Adults don't have the wisdom anymore to understand that. You know, we focus on differences too much as opposed to how we're similar. Now, part of that also does, you know, for me, it helped me understand that if I put the work and the effort in, I could get the same high grade as anyone in my class, no matter what they look like. And if I really applied myself, I could get the highest grade. And that's when you start to develop that sort of grit and understanding that it isn't a function of necessarily how you're viewed at its face, but the work you put in. And in some cases, even the work you put in isn't enough. And those are cases you need, just need to understand that. And then you need to go drive through where it is enough. And that's where I get back to the you are enough. Okay, it's an important part of growing up is to face those obstacles and deal with them and realize not only can you be among the best, but you can be the best. But you have to set it in your mind to do so and put that time and energy and effort in to do that. Okay. Cool. Yes, sir. So I have the uh, Facebook feed. Okay, awesome. There are, uh, Technology, now we're talking about software here, all right. At least 20, uh, 74 questions, so I will filter them for Let's you. Let's go. One from a, a local small business, uh, Kizzy Williams, it reads, I am the owner of a small restaurant right in Albany. Can you tell me what you did different than other business owners that got you where you are today? Yeah, that's a good, that's a, that's a good and a tough question. What I did differently, you know, um, there's a couple things that I did differently. One of the first things was when I looked at building my company, I decided that I wanted it to be a global business. And w when I say that, you have to now think about an infrastructure that's different for a global business and a local business. And, and I said, okay, for one of the first things I said, look, I want to, you know, my goal was to be the best investor of my generation. Period, end of story, full stop. Okay, what does that entail? Well, that entails uh, actually having higher returns with the lowest loss ratio. And so now I needed to figure out a system that accomplished that. So beyond just the desire to hit that goal, it was now I had to put deep thinking into the system that would accomplish that. I spent over a year and a half before I stood up my company working on the architecture of that system. And it is now that system, now 16 years later, that I'm realizing the benefits of. So, look, this doesn't happen quick. And if you want it to last, you have to build pillars on which you can put your business and make it last. You know, a lot of people try to make, you know, call it get rich quick, but you want to be, you know, you want to get rich for a long time is really what your goal is. So build a business and an infrastructure that supports that, which means having, in all honesty, you know, the right business ethics, 
okay? And finding the right people who understand exactly what it is that you're looking to accomplish, building the right infrastructure behind it, the right legal structures, and frankly, you know, being, being uncompromising and unwavering in your standards, and you know, at the end of the day, you gotta spend a whole lot of time doing it and executing and perfecting the model. So when I look at other private equity firms that started when I did, who were a fraction of our size with a fraction of the success, when I talked to those partners and listened to them, they had a completely different goal than I did, and they built their businesses different, and then were relative to their goal. And it kind of gets back to your question, believe it or not, which is, you know, how do you actually sit back and, 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 and manifest it the way you want? Yeah, you've got to think about what God's goodness does provide for you and manifest it the right way. And it has to be consistent with those goals. And guess what? That means a whole lot of time, energy, and effort you have to spend to support that goal through activities. So hopefully that answers your question. Did I answer your question, Kizzy? Yes, it did. Good. And good luck. This one is from Jameer Shelby. It says, what are the same three daily habits you have had before and now since you have become successful to keep pushing forward with your eyes on the prize? Great, that's they're great. So three questions, or the three habits. Um, the most important habit that I have is to think deeply about what it is I want to accomplish and speak that clearly into the universe. You have to do that in a way, frankly, that doesn't prohibit outcomes that you may not like, but may be better for you. And I'll give you an example. I remember there was one investor who I just wanted them to be an investor in my fund, because everyone told me they were great and they were big and all that sort of thing. And ultimately turned me down, and they still have turned me down to this day. It's kind of interesting. Now they're coming back, so we really want to be big in your fund. But those who actually you know, took money from that investor ran into problems for the next three years because they actually had problems in the way they did things, right? And so following what I'll call the instinct of knowing God gave me what I needed at the time that I needed it, um, and what I didn't need was them as an investor because they probably would have caused me problems, okay, for decades to come. So the first one is be, you know, think clearly, speak it into the universe, and be willing to accept the outcome in the form that it manifests as opposed to trying to shape it. So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is um, be willing to do everything in your organization uh, that everyone else does. You know, I, like I said, you know, I, look, I'll, I'll serve, I, and I literally do sometimes come in, I'll serve coffee to people or we'll sweep, whatever, it, it doesn't matter to me. And I, and I tease my, everyone in my company, like I'm better at every one of their jobs than they are. And I should be. And there is nothing beneath you nor nothing above you in that context if it is your business and you're building that business. So the second thing is you know, be willing to do what it takes in your business to be successful, of course, in the guidance of what it is is your, is your moral center uh, around what you want to do. And I think the third thing, um, uh, quite frankly, is, and I, and I laugh a little bit because I'm trying not to do this so much, is get up early. Uh, I always get up early. I'm up at 4.35, 5.30 in the morning. I'm trying to stay in bed till 7. That's really hard. But um, those are golden hours to think clearly where you're not bombarded by, you know, the, I'll call it the, the impact of the day. You know, you wake up in the morning, you know, for me, I've got 
you know, 95 emails and, you know, 15 voicemails and messages and all that sort of stuff. And that can actually get you distracted. So in the mornings, it's a golden time to actually, you know, think about what it is that you want to accomplish to support, you know, number one on the list and what activities you need to do consistent with that. So those are the three habits I think that I've continued all my life. I've got that red thing going on on my phone, so the battery's about to die. But <laughs> Elijah Conrad has a great question as a follow-up to something that you said earlier. Uh, he wants to know, uh, what is intellectual property, and how do you protect an idea? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you think about it, and, I, and I, you know, America, to be frank with you, only has six real imports and they're all intellectual property based, right? If you think about it, it's technology, it's our software, it's our legal system, it's our banking system, it's entertainment, okay? You know, even movies and all that's all into, okay? Uh, pharmaceutical development and, you know, that's kind of about it, right? Those are the only real exports we have of mass that make any money that are, that are imports. So an in intellectual property at the end of the day is really an idea that manifests itself in a business form or construct. Okay, driving in today, you know, we we're driving in from the airport, you know, intellectual property may be, okay, I see a number of houses here that can, can be, you know, renovated. Uh, how do I bring capital? You know, the intellectual property might be, you know, can I develop some app, some app software app that, if, if, uh, that, that matches up people who want to develop houses and people who have money to develop them, right? And houses that are, that are available. So it's any idea that you have that you can manifest in the construct of a business and how you protect it quite frankly is develop it point number one and you know not to you know hit the lawyers out here but you typically have to find some legal help to figure out how you actually make sure that it's a unique a it is different and, and b protectable some ideas may not be protectable so then you just got to what i call run fast and do it better than anybody else some things are protectable, so you need to make sure you get the right sort of legal protections. But if you don't commercialize them, I don't care how great an idea is, it's not worth it. Outside of you saying the pride of I had it. I tell people, you know, I, I missed out on my first billion dollars when I was 11 years old because my brother and I, we lived across the street from the golf course. And it was a city golf course. and Everybody used to hit golf balls into our, our yard. And so we'd pick them up and then we'd go sell them. And, you know, that's how we learned to play golf, too. But, you know, on the, on the off hours. But we, we play golf at night, you know, after the last golfer gone on. So it was dusk, 4 o'clock, 5, 6 o'clock. And you couldn't see the ball. So what we started doing is we took them and we started dipping them in fluorescent paint. And we played with these fluorescent paint balls, right? Well, if anybody here has ever seen, you know, that is a multi-billion dollar industry now. These, you know, these glowing, you know, these yellow and pink golf balls. We had that idea 40-something years ago. And frankly, we should have manifested there and, you know, created a business around it. And I'm sure one of the golf balls we sold to the golfers, it was pink and yellow. Somebody said, oh, man, we should make this. And, and they probably made a fortune off of it. But, but the whole point is, although it was a great idea, we didn't commercialize it at the time, uh, and we missed out on it. But I tease my brother all the time and say, man, you, you know, you missed out on it. But, uh, uh, you know, part of intellectual property is you have to commercialize it one way or another. So this uh, will shorten up the questions from Facebook and actually take some live. So this will be, I won't say the last one, something really good may come through. Um, but we'll ask a couple of young people to come to the microphone and you can ask Mr. Smith a question directly uh, after I ask this one. So this one is from Michaela Mackey and she's asked, why did you focus on 
software, enterprise software and technology? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I actually speak about this a lot, um, and I just actually gave a talk to about 1,200 people on this a couple, couple days ago. You know, and, and, and I want you all to really listen to this, because this is important. You know, software is the most productive tool introduced in our business economy in the last 50 years. When I was growing up, we bought airline tickets or checked in and out of hotels or managed, you know, had a blood test done or, you know, got a hotel reservation. Very differently than it's done now. It's all done through software. And if you are under the age of, you know, frankly, 25, you should be trying to figure out how to learn how to code and how to write code and understand code. And it could be anything from, you know, how do you program, you know, software to keep a power grid stable to, to run a restaurant better. It is permeating every dimension of our economy, and it is the on-ramp to the economy today. You know, and it's fun. I've got my son and my nephew here, and, you know, this past year, uh, you know, we built a computer together for my son. And part of it was, yeah, we can buy him a computer. I, I can actually afford one of those. But the point is, it's important for him to build it and learn about it. And I am hopeful that he starts to embrace what I call learning how to program. So the reason I moved into software is because, A, it's the most productive tool introduced in business economy. Believe it or not, you don't need a lot of money to, to develop software. If I wanted to go buy a house and develop real estate, I got to have money to go buy a house. If I want to write software code, believe it or not, the computing power is actually available free on the internet. You just got to dial into it and use that computing power to build the products and goods and services that you think you know, can actually be commercially viable and then find buyers for it. It is one of the few businesses that doesn't require a lot of capital and you can become wildly rich. What's this thing called Facebook? What did he use to develop that? A PC. Think about this. This guy's now worth, I don't know, 15, 18, 20 billion dollars. And he started with a PC and you can argue his idea, some other guy's idea, whatever, but developed it sold it into a community, it was effective. Fast forward 18 years, this guy's worth $20 billion. There is no reason why anyone in here couldn't do that same thing outside of your desire to do it. It's actually not that hard once you learn how to do it. And I'd encourage you all to embrace that on-ramp of software and technology so that hopefully one day you're coming to me saying, you know what, Mr. Smith, I want you to buy my company for $800 million. And I look at it and say, man, it's going to be worth $2 billion to me and I'm going to offer you eight hundred because I'm going to make the billion too, okay? But that's what I hope happens. And so, you know, with that, that's why I went into the software business. We're not going to take questions from you, Mr. Tobias. <laughs> We're ready for the young people to come, but because we are in a, a, a house of worship, um, I just want you to at least mention to the children um, your basis, how spirituality played a part in your life. And, so you and missed the first part of the conversation. We already went through that. Oh, I did? Oh, good. That's great. Did you tell them about how you convinced me that... <laughs> the apocalypse had come. No, but you, you can tell them that story if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I neglected story. that story. To tell the story. I'm not telling that story. <laughs> but, I, but I am happy to take some more questions. <laughs> come on, young people. 
There's got to be somebody with a question. Come on up. Hi, I'm Isaac Hilton. Um, how did you make it where you are on your business? Like, how did you come so successful where you are right now? So the, the key to this is, again, deciding and having a goal and then putting some very, what I call, concrete intentions behind that goal. You know, I decided I wanted to be the best investor of my generation. Point number one, okay? Point number two, and like I said, you gotta speak that very clearly into the universe. You gotta speak that into God's ear and say, here's what I want to, and then you have to listen to what it is you have to do in order to make that happen. And so a big part of that is for me, and I knew the intention was very clear for me, I had to go to school. I had to go to the best school I could get into. You all should be demanding from your parents to get into the best, to go to the best schools available. I don't care where they are. If you gotta go away to school, then you figure it out, and you, with your parents, you figure it out. And you parents, you know, quite frankly, you need to demand that the best schools are available to your kids. Because if you don't have that basic level of, 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 of you know, I'll call it bedrock, then, then it makes it much more difficult. Now, I'm not saying you can't, but it makes it much more difficult to get, get to the, where you're going. So that was important to me. So yeah, I picked up and left Denver, Colorado and went to Ithaca, New York, because that's where they had the best education that was available to me. And then from there, listened to what the universe was telling me and what God was telling me where I needed to go and how, I, how, how, how hard I needed to work and what I needed to accomplish in terms of my grades and the internships and the experiences and, and frankly demonstrate that I was ready to receive the gifts. All those are important parts of it. First thing is set the goal. Second thing is you gotta speak in the third thing. You gotta make sure all your actions are consistent. You can't say you want that goal and then your actions are, are inconsistent. You have to be very consistent with your activities, okay? Hi, my name is Sean Grant. Growing up as a black male, what are some things people said to tear you down and lower your confidence? You know, I don't want to speak what they say, but you all know, unfortunately, you know, we have in our community gotten into a bad habit of tearing each other down. It is a horrible thing. It is a horrible habit. And it is one we cannot, you know, we cannot continue. And you have to stop it every time you see it. I've been called every name under the sun, as you can imagine. Okay? Uh, and as I tell people, you know, I've been called worse things by better people than, than the person calling me that. Right? So, you know, to a great extent, you, you cannot listen to that. You know, it, you know your generation is, is more concerned with likes. You care what people think about you. And listen, we all care what people think about us on the one hand, but you also have to care what you think about yourself. That gets back into you are enough, okay? And you gotta say, you know what? First of all, don't listen to what they have to say. That's point number one. Point number two, focus on what it is that you want to accomplish and what you have to do. Look, you know, in, in, in school, you know, you'll be, you know, back in the day, you know, been called everything, right? You know, from four eyes. Who cares? What matters is you become the person you want to be. And you do the things that are important for you to become that. And you demand the respect of who you are. 
You got to demand that yourself. And I don't care if they're older, young, whatever. You demand that they respect you for who you are and the choices you make. But be consistent in those actions. Thank you. Hello, my name is Alexa Evans, and I'd like to know who is your biggest supporter as you grew up and to be here right now? Okay, did you ask that question? Did your mom make you come up and ask that question? My mom. I could tell you she was for <laughs> Get up there! So the short answer is my mom used to make me come up and ask those questions too, which answers the question. That was my biggest supporter. She did force me to do things I didn't want to do, and I had all manner of names in my mind, because if I said it to him, I was going to get smacked. But I will tell you, it was, you know, her forcing me, her encouragement, my dad's encouragement, that made me know that I could be what I wanted to become. And those are important things. And sometimes, you know, your parents get on your nerves, okay, on your last nerve. But I'll tell you, they, they love you. They mean well for you. And you should listen to them a lot because every now and then they'll give you some advice that's just stupid. But, I mean, I got to say that. It's true. I mean, my grandfather, I love my grandfather. I mean, he was, he was a big... But I was at working at a place, uh, it was Kraft General Foods, and my granddad's, why would you ever leave that job? It's a good paying job. You're there, you get paid. Why would you ever leave? But you got to follow your heart, too. Because I said, granddad, there's this other thing that you don't know about called investment banking. And these people, he's like, well, look, grandson, if that's what you want to do, I support you in that. But if I'd taken his initial advice, I'd still be sitting at Kraft General Foods. Okay, so there's a fine line. You listen to them, they're great supporters, but part of the support is you gotta get your courage from knowing that you know what, you're, what you wanna accomplish and don't be afraid to do it. But every time your mom tells you to come up to the mic, you come up to the mic, okay? <laughs> That's good for you. Hi, my name is Michaela Mackey. Um, I want, I've always had this dream ever since I was four to be the first black African-American woman president. Excellent. And what would your advice be and what did you strive for as a kid to get to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Politics is tough, man, but I gotta tell you, you can do it. Um, because you look at some of these fools out here now doing it, right? <laughs> but in all, in all honesty, a, a good part of uh, you achieving your goal is a speaking it. Okay, and then making sure your actions are consistent. Figure out what makes successful politicians. And then you figure out what you need to do in order to support uh, that goal. And part of it might be, you know what, you may need to get some business experience, you may need to get some political experience, you may need to, and, and all those things are important, but, but literally sit back and understand what it takes. And then make sure that your actions over the next 15, 20 years support that. And don't waver from that if that's truly one of your, you know, truly your goal in life. That's an important part of reaching and attaining your goals. And good luck to you, and I will vote for you. Thank you. All right. We only have time for two more questions. Okay. We've gone well over our time. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Bryce Kada, and I wanted to ask you, what, was, what is one of your most successful things that you have done in life and what college did you graduate from? Sure. I guess one of the most successful things I've done in life uh, is, is uh, get my son to take a shower today. No. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing you, Max. <laughs> um, 
No, my, my son, uh, who is sitting here, is a straight-A student. Um, my, his older sister is a straight-A student. Uh, their older sister is a straight-A student, with exception, she now got a she first semester at, at NYU, got a 3-4, so we had a little conversation about that. Uh, and their, uh, ne my nephew, their older cousin, is now just getting back into uh, MIT studying engineering. So when I think about what makes me most proud is to see that we as a family can educate our kids and get them launched into this economy and into this world in a way with the right values, uh, with, with, with the right goals and and you know, with any luck, because we got a few more years, uh, a you know, a, a a mindset of success and uh, accomplishments that make them happy. And in all honesty, that's the most th that's the thing I'm most proud of. Thank you. Oh, and I went to Cornell University and finished with a degree in chemical engineering, and then I went to Columbia. So to finish the second question. Okay. Hello, my name is Nori Butler, and I would like to ask you: When did you learn about God, and where? I mean, I, you know, learned about God growing up, right? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I used to have to get up when I was, I think we were seven, six or seven, and, and uh, I was raised, uh, raised Catholic. And so, you know, my dad was actually an altar boy uh, growing up, and I went to the same church that my dad was an altar boy. So uh, every Sunday, you know, we would get dressed and, for a period of time, we would drive down there. Then my parents would make us walk down for catechism class and all those things at you know god awful times in the morning, on Sunday. Uh, but they served donuts, so it's, it was worth it. Um, uh, but that's <laughs> what I learned about God. It was always in my household, and uh, and it's an important thing to to feel and understand and understand your relationship with God, and don't forget it. And 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 as you get older. Uh, as you start going away from your parents' homes, hopefully, and, and going to college and, and building businesses and families and all those sorts of things, um, that's what you need to make sure you hold on to in a way that's unique and authentic. And uh, use it to empower you and not to be a crutch, but use it to empower you to be who you want to be. All right. You got to uh, let him ask his question, Lou. Right. Come on, okay, man. Okay, okay. Hi, my name is Brant Cadet, and where, when, what age did you become where you are now? Wow, good question. I have always been this way. <laughs> and I sincerely mean that. I always knew that I wanted to be a very successful businessman in America. And the journey up till now was all just trying to figure out how and how to do it uniquely and in my way and in a way that made me happy with who I was. So when I was your age, yeah, I wanted to be a successful business person because to be frank with you, I, I didn't like wearing my brother's clothes. I wanted to buy my own clothes and wear my own shoes that I didn't have to put cardboard in the bottom of them. So that was an important thing when I was your age and I have the great fortune now that, uh, that I no longer have those worries but it's all through hard work and dedication to craft in order to make that happen. Okay. So good luck. Right. Go ahead, Louie, do the two one, man. We'll do them quick. All right, go ahead, two, two okay. quick ones. Hi, my name is James Pravat. And how many years have you been getting money? Getting money? <laughs> Long time. Um, 
you know, I was talking to my wife the other day. She and, and the kids, we had dinner last night. I know the topic came up was when I made my first million dollars. And it has been 20 years when I made my first million dollars from, from, from today. And uh, I used to have a little less gray hair. Um, but I enjoyed every second of that journey, enjoy every second of this journey. Last question. Thank you. Hi, my name is Noah Davis, and if I were to walk away right now, what was the most important thing you want me to remember from? That, that you are enough. Huh? That you are enough. Okay. Thank you, Liz. Awesome.